"'Twas the day after Christmas, and all's said and done. But it isn't quite over. All ends just begun. Our stockings are empty, the eggnogs run out, but we've still got Nintendo news to talk about. In this week's Indie Showcase, we've got only the best. We can do this, we'll say, as we climb Mount Celeste. So bundle up and spend some time by the tree. We're talking to Kelsey Lewin all about video game history. And even though we're still full of holiday cheer, we're looking so forward to the new year. And as we look to the future and the upcoming fun, we'll tell you our top five things we can't wait to play in 2021. And so as we've said time and again, happy holidays to all. It's time to go all in. guys i am turbo man and his faithful pet sidekick eric thank you so much for hanging out with us this christmas weekend for all of you who did celebrate yesterday merry christmas and since this episode is dropping on the 26th to all of you who are celebrating the traditional african holiday happy kwanzaa yes absolutely and i am you'll shoot your eye out seth and we want to welcome everybody to All In, the Nintendo Variety Show, where each and every week, no shell is left unturned and no point is left unearned. We are happy to be spending this holiday season with you guys, and uh, we thank you guys for joining us each and every week. You know, we, we didn't want to forego the Christmas cheer this year. <laughs> it's the holidays, man, and we we just had to we had to bring some of that to you guys. I mean... I know we're missing it by a day, but it's all right. It's still Kwanzaa. I had Hanukkah, you know, happen a couple of weeks ago now. It's it's all, we can all wrap it all together. We can all celebrate the holidays together. And and I think, uh, I think that's what we're going to do here today. But before we get into it, sir, what's been going on this week? Well, I tried a couple new games. I actually started playing Horus on oh. my Nintendo Switch. Yes, a little indie game called Horus, if you've never heard about it it's a a weird little platformer it's very british that nintendo life gave like a 10 out of 10 to yeah i honestly i don't think i would give it a 10 out of 10 right now it's and it's really bizarre and for a game that has such bright and kind of whimsical pixel art it deals with some pretty morbid things so i don't know i've started it it's interesting enough that i'll keep playing it so we'll see what happens when I beat the game. We'll see how I feel about it. But I did hear a lot of good things. Figured I would try it out. Obviously still playing Age of Calamity. We will be getting to that very shortly into the new year. Cannot wait to talk about that. I did have a ton of fun a couple days ago on Toy Day in Animal mm. Crossing. Got to see Jingle hanging around my island. Got to hand out presents to all of my islanders. And uh, this wasn't very widely publicized, but I hope everybody put up your festive stockings, your toy day stockings that you got. So 
if you didn't, it's too late now, but we hope you all did. We hope you all got that nice little surprise. Yeah, Jingle kind of mentions it when Jingle yeah. gives it to you. But but yeah, if you like if you kind of slip through the cracks of that, you know, really short dialogue sequence, you wouldn't have known really to do that. But yeah, hopefully you did. And um I honestly I really liked the Toy Day event. I see some people kind of dogging on it a little bit because it's not as in depth as like the Halloween event was, but to me, I like it at least as much as the Thanksgiving event. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was fun. It very much captured the spirit of the holiday. You went around and you handed out presents to all of your villagers. And even beyond that, you could do a gift exchange with them. And there were some very festive, very Christmas themed DIYs like there are for all of the different holidays. And just like all the different holidays, I really, really liked the DIYs, the sleigh, the wreath, the stack of gifts, and the fact that you can craft a snowman costume I thought was fantastic. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of all the frozen DIYs, all of these ice sculpture DIYs. I think I might actually make a huge part of my island. Uh, You know that frozen hotel up in like Sweden or something? Right. Yes. Yeah. I think I might dedicate an entire portion of my island to maybe replicating that, that frozen hotel thing, because there are a couple of, a couple of very interesting DIYs you can get that are kind of conducive to doing something like that. Yeah, you totally could with all those frozen DIYs. I really liked that kind of, you know, I'm enjoying like obsessively making my perfect snow person every day, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And just playing more with Sephiroth in uh, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. We finally got, he was finally officially released on the 22nd. And what essentially that meant was uh, we finally got Cloud's new Final Smash in the game, which was great to try out. We finally got the Mii costumes that became available for Barrett, Tifa, Aerith, Gino. Still would like to see him in the game. Maybe we'll mention him uh, a little bit here in a a second. And then who was the other costume? Oh, man, it was... um, uh, Oh, the Chocobo. Yeah, it was the Chocobo hat. So those are now available and uh, the Final Fantasy VII Spirits are now yes. available in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. So did get to have a lot of fun messing around with those. I'm just having a lot of fun. I mean, I have a lot of fun with a lot of the characters, but Sephiroth really has just grabbed me. I really like using his Shadow Flare ability. I like yes. playing Party Smash. I'm not really super competitive. I just enjoy playing the game. And I love playing with like four or five different people and just using his Shadow Flare to create that little, those swirling dark yes. orbs around the characters and just have them all kill each other. <laughs> well, spoilers online right now, it's just a sea of Sephiroth. That's all you, that's all it is online right now. So unsurprisingly, not a doubt in my mind that that's what's going on. A fantastic addition to smash brothers. And uh, honestly, I'm just as excited to have all the extra music because <sighs> that's been one thing. And we mentioned it last week, obviously, but that's been one thing that has been really noticeable in terms of Cloud's uh, inclusion in Smash Brothers was the fact that he only brought two songs with him from the franchise, whereas, you know, we have this multitude of songs from so many different franchises and so many different intellectual properties, and yet the music in Final Fantasy VII is so amazing and so iconic. And I, again, I'm almost as excited, just 
barely more excited to have Sephiroth in Smash versus all the music that he brought with him. And it's just, it's absolutely fantastic. Super Smash Brothers continues to be the greatest, frankly, and most comprehensive crossover in the history of entertainment. Again, maybe not yep. the most profitable. Uh, hello, MCU. But Super Smash Brothers Ultimate is just a special, special game. I don't know if if they can ever really make another one like this ever again. So, guys, enjoy it. We may honestly be in the golden age of Smash Brothers right now. So, just riding that train as long as I can. What about you, buddy? What have you been up to this past week? Yeah, I, I've been playing a lot of Sephiroth too. When I get some gaming time, I, I have really been liking him a lot. He, I think I said this last week, but he really, to me, feels like one of the characters that I feel like I'm going to take the time to learn. I like the way he feels that much. Some people feel like he's a little too slow. I don't personally feel that way. I, I think he feels just right. I tend to gravitate towards lighter, faster characters. But Sephiroth to me is like the epitome of the glass cannon. The kind of character that can take a lot of damage very easily, but can also deal a lot of damage just as easily. Um, some of the stuff that, especially going through his, uh, like that classic mode run. Yeah. That boss rush. Oh, Oh, it was so cool. It was so cool. And I was just doing like just filthy stuff, just watching the like health bars melt (laughs) with Sephiroth with that giga flare. Oh yeah. That giga flare is disgusting. Like, uh, it's, he's really cool. I love his inclusion in the game. Um, and yeah, like you did Toy Day. We talked about that already. I won't belabor that point, but was good. Um, looking forward to the New Year stuff coming up soon. Oh, yeah. But I do want to talk for a second about Super Meat Boy Forever. Yes. Now, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the original Super Meat Boy. Loved oh, it's it. a classic. It's a classic. It, it really is. Uh, one of my favorite 2D platformers ever, really. There are a few things. The reason I want to stop and talk about it here. I haven't played a ton of it. I I have done the first like world, the entirety of the first world. And I, there are some pretty significant things that I actually don't like about it. Um, one and a bunch of stuff that I didn't know. And it makes sense when I kind of consider that this game initially took life as a mobile game. Um, so the levels are actually procedurally generated by seeds in some respect. They are not tailored levels in the way that the original Super Meat Boy was, which is weird. Like once you load into the seed, like it's set, like your levels are set. You're going to be replaying the same level, but that run is going to be based on the seed that you select. Like when you start up your seed file, it is procedurally generated at the beginning. It's really weird. And I don't think I like that as much as an authored, designed level obviously there's been a ton of roguelikes over the past you know five years roguelikes have really come into their own as a genre and there's been some phenomenal ones but it it isn't the easiest to do something new with yeah and it just doesn't feel like a good fit for super meat boy it's almost like this weird half step between authored levels and and like procedurally generated roguelike kind of levels or whatever And, you know, once you get into them, the levels are good and well-designed and stuff. But there's also the fact that if you didn't know, Super Meat Boy Forever is an auto runner. So it is not a traditional kind of platformer. Like Meat Boy is constantly moving forward. That's the whole thing. 
And that takes a lot of getting used to. Like a lot. I will say that they do some really cool, interesting things that make that feel good. But if you do not kind of get on board with the fact that this is an auto runner, like don't look at this as Super Meat Boy 2. Look at this as a Super Meat Boy like spin-off game because it does not control the same way as Super Meat Boy 2. A lot of the same things that were present in the original game are there, but it is not like a straight sequel. Like I think a lot of people might think it is. Like the gameplay is completely different. I will say again, they they made it feel good. It does feel good to play once you sort of reckon with that. But if you come into this thinking that it's going to be the same type of gameplay from the first one, I think you're going to be disappointed. That said, the things that do carry over from the first one are the super like fun, funny, charming, just style that the first game has. I cannot wait for you to play it because the very the introductory cutscene to the first world is like gonna make you joy squeal. <laughs> like because you know how they did with the first one they had like little references to nes games yeah for those who don't know the the cutscenes in the original super meat boy the game itself was incredibly referential and most of the cutscenes in the original super meat boy were direct spoofs of older nintendo games just using super meat boy characters there was one spoof of the original pokemon battle that offered yep. that was the intro to pokemon red and blue there was a ninja gaiden style cutscene there was a Mega Man style cutscene they were all direct spoofs of old nintendo games again just using super meat boy characters and they were fantastic and that trend continues with super meat boy forever that is something that has carried over the <laughs> The cuts that that first cutscene when I saw it and when it clicked what it was, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I I was actually surprised at what I was seeing. I cannot wait for you to see it because it's just going to like I thought of you when I saw it. I was like, oh, like Eric is going to lose his mind when he sees this. So that was really cool. I like the game overall, but it is admittedly really different from what I was expecting. I knew it was an auto runner going in. And, and again, I do think they've kind of made lemonade out of the lemons. I, I do think they've kind of like proven that Super Meat Boy can work in this format. But I did just want to talk about it for a few minutes because I think that if some of our listeners pick this up expecting Super Meat Boy 2, they, they will be a little disappointed. Yeah, so the original game came out 10 years ago. And when a game franchise has gone for that long, especially a game franchise that's only had one core installment when it comes back there is such a a temptation to Mm -hmm. reinvent to go so much further because you feel like you're having to evolve the game multiple stages it's almost like you feel you're having to go from super meat boy to super meat boy four or five just because of how long it's been and sometimes the differences when you take that mentality the differences can be jarring and it's kind of sounding like that's what's happened. Yeah. I hope it's still a good game. I still want to try it, obviously. Super Meat Boy, along with Fez and a couple other games from about a decade ago, really helped set the indie the indie game scene on the path that it's on now. Super Meat Boy was one of the first indie games that was really able to compete with, with AAA titles. And it's an absolute classic. The original is also available on the Nintendo Switch. Definitely check it out. But I'm still interested to check it out. I at least, at the very least, if 
for that opening cutscene that you're so excited about. Yeah, no, it's great. But I, and that's another thing too, though, for me is like, there is an intangible thing that the music brought to it. Um, for those that don't know what I'm talking about, the original super meat boy for its original release, uh, was composed by Danny Baranowski, the Danny B, you know, an amazing soundtrack. And they lost the licensing rights to that when they brought the game over to switch and modern consoles. So playing super meat boy in its modern form, even the original does not have its original soundtrack, which always struck me as weird. And it never felt right. That classic, like crunchy electric guitar, you know, like that always felt like super meat boy to me. And they never quite recaptured that. And that kind of follows suit here. So like, there's just something about it that doesn't quite feel as much as I am actually enjoying it. And as much of the things that I like about Super Meat Boy do carry over, um, there are some really important things that made Super Meat Boy what it was to me that are not here, you know? So I can't help but feel a little disappointed in it, even though I'm having fun with it so far. So that's just, that's what I got. Um, you know, maybe tread lightly, you know, maybe wait for a sale or something. Um, if you're interested, um, but you know, I just, I wanted to talk about it for a minute because super meat boy is something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about, but yeah, we've got some news to cover. Obviously it is a little bit of a lighter news week because it is the holidays. Folks are not working right now. (laughs) So (laughs) no, nobody's really around to release news, but a couple things did happen and, uh, it, brings up a couple of interesting topics that we thought we would speak with you guys about. Let's do it. Hey, listen. Yeah, there are a few kind of like interesting things floating around in the news cycle this week, despite the holidays, kind of the doldrums of the holidays. Uh, We did see that the concept artist for Super Mario RPG revealed some like early concept art of Geno. Yeah, I'm totally not excited about this at all. (laughs) That was kind of cool to see. So even, you know, even though Geno was kind of like, you know, whatever, deconfirmed for Smash, whatever you want to call it, it was still kind of cool to see a little bit of Geno love floating around there uh, on the internet. But something that was really interesting is that Universal Studios Japan's mobile app was data mined and data miners actually found some of the unlockable stamps. We all, we know at this point um, from the kind of like Nintendo Direct that they did for Super Nintendo World, we know that there is going to be a collectible and unlockable stamps system, really similar to the Miiverse stamps from back on Wii U. And uh, yeah, they data mined some of these ones uh, with some artwork And it's a bunch of Donkey Kong stuff, uh, which is really funny because we've basically known for like the past year that there was going to be a Donkey Kong expansion coming to the park. And in fact, I think it's already being worked on. And this basically confirms it because we've just got a swath of Donkey Kong stamps that have been uncovered. And what the app actually is, for those who might not know, who might not have seen the Nintendo Direct, is... The, the Super Nintendo world is essentially going to be an interactive theme park, even more so than the rides. There are going to be all of these stations that yep. you can collect coins, that you can physically interact with. And a lot of your interactions can be cataloged in the app. The app is there specifically to, to help you to enhance the experience of the park. It's not like some 
You know, it's it's not just like some advertising app or something. It's there as a companion specifically to be used when you visit the park. And yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited about all this extra Donkey Kong stuff. Obviously, you know, I don't want to say obviously, but I think we all knew that what was shown off during the Nintendo Direct with Bowser's Castle and Toad's uh, Cafe and and the underground section and all the different little uh, areas that that the father canonically of Mario and Luigi <laughs> went through. Uh, it was it was it was great, but we knew that wasn't going to be the end of it, and. I have no doubt that once this opens, it's going to be insanely successful. So I think we can expect expansions pretty soon and for a long time. And it looks like, again, they're already planning for that down the road, maybe even toward the end of next year. We'll see. But uh, but it does make me very happy that even before the park opens in early February in Japan, that they're already looking to the future to expand on it, to make it even more of a Nintendo fan's dream. Now, now let me throw on my speculator, my kind of like my, my, uh, <laughs> my crazy conspiracy theory hat here, because I really feel like this has got to mean that Nintendo is about to make Donkey Kong a big deal again. Why would they invest all this money to open up a Donkey Kong expansion to the park when Donkey Kong is one of Nintendo's most irrelevant franchises right now. Not that there isn't love for Donkey Kong, of course, but like Tropical Freeze came out in 2014. Jeez, has it really been that long? Almost seven years ago. February 21st, 2014 is when that game came out in North America. That was the last mainline Donkey Kong game. Like Donkey Kong has not been in the public eye in any major way in that long. And so... For me, like when you're talking about an immediate expansion, the one of the most, if not the most popular Nintendo franchise right now is Zelda. Why wouldn't they do Zelda straight out the gate? So to me, this this tells me that there has got to be some kind of Donkey Kong something ramping up real soon. And it wouldn't shock me at all if we've got a new Donkey Kong game coming in the very near future. Well, it's not a major major anniversary but the 40th anniversary of the original release of donkey kong is next year the original arcade release of donkey kong was july 9th 1981 so uh, maybe it's you know nintendo certainly has a lot of anniversaries next year yeah it is it's a big anniversary year next year maybe they're doing it as a 40th anniversary of the original release of donkey kong thing i don't know maybe they're just doing it because they know donkey kong is such a beloved member of their stable if they do i hope they i hope they go all out i hope they make it a full dkc k rule diddy kong dixie kong unguard squitter just everybody I would I'd spend as much time there as I would in the Mario as as I would in Mario's kingdom. Yeah, I mean, we would all love it, you know, obviously as as old school Nintendo fans and that certainly appeals to you know a lot of the folks that are going to be coming to this park, but you know, you've got to appeal also to the new audience and the vast majority of casual fans who are going to be coming to this place who have basically no touchstone for Donkey Kong at this point and I think that that's something that Nintendo is going to really try to capitalize on as we're coming into this. Like if they're going to do a full blown Donkey Kong expansion, 
It's time for at minimum to have a new game in the pipe. We put K rule in Smash a couple years ago. It's relevant enough. <laughs> I mean, that's all great. And of course, now we've got the original trilogy on Switch finally. That's awesome. Tropical Freeze has been ported to Switch, but it's like it's been too long. Like Donkey Kong has got to become relevant again if they're gonna be putting all of this effort and more importantly, money into a full-blown expansion to the park. So either way, I can't wait to visit it. I hope this all shakes out to be true. And uh, I mean, it certainly seems like it is. I don't know. We'll see what happens. The park opens in February. And uh, I don't know, since they're, by all accounts, working on the Donkey Kong park already, hopefully we'll hear something about that soon. Now, it's not really a massive news story, but something did happen this week that I do want to talk about for a second because it does have to deal <laughs> with one of the biggest pop culture websites basically on the internet. Uh, it's been a very, very interesting week for Supergiant. This week, they got a couple more awards. As a matter of fact, IGN released their awards of the year and Hades took home not only best action game of the year from IGN, but IGN actually named it their game of the year. So Hades continuing to be showered with awards and accolades. And yet, WatchMojo.com, regardless of what you think of them, WatchMojo.com is still a massively popular pop culture website. If you don't know what WatchMojo is, for all intents and purposes, it's a YouTube channel that does top tens. They publish about 50 a day and they range in topics from video games and movies and anime. They've got all kinds of different topics that they, they cover. And this past week they released a video of their top 10 hidden gems of 2020 and inexplicably their number one quote unquote hidden gem of the year was Hades. That's Hades. It's not a hidden gem, you guys. Like they even put Hades in the thumbnail for the video. And the, the reason I wanted to bring this up specifically was you have a game that has been on most outlets shortlist of their game of the year. It was our runner up game of the year here at all in. And uh, I mean, they've done advertising on YouTube you know, obviously every streamer and content creator out there seemingly has played through it this past year. I honestly don't know what Supergiant, what else Supergiant could have done to to spread the net even further. I really it don't. It was the game of the year for IGN, which is the biggest video game website in yeah. the world. It was nominated for several awards including the game of the year award at the most highly publicized gaming award show in existence it could not be less of a hidden gem if it tried and that's that's the thing is especially with the way the script was written for this especially for the entry for Hades it almost seemed as if Watch Mojo thought they were the ones breaking the news on the fact that Hades is a great game but i can only imagine because it is technically an indie game, because it didn't get a mass-produced, widespread physical release, that that's how they somehow justify it to themselves, that Hades is, in some universe, a hidden gem. 
And this is, I think, the stigma that a lot of indie games are having to overcome, especially with the casual audience, because more and more people are coming over to the side of, oh my God, these you know these indie games are actually fantastic. I'm not just here for Call of Duty and Madden anymore. I want to check out a lot of these smaller independent studios. More and more people are, are jumping on you know, indie games as a viable option. You know, they've been a viable option, obviously, for, for over a decade now. We just talked about Super Meat Boy, but still it seems as if in the casual market, there just seems to be this kind of stigma that a lot of them, you know, if they don't get a release in Walmart, in GameStop, if they don't get a mass release, then they're not worth anybody's time. If they're not big enough to do that, then they aren't big enough for me to worry about. And I just... I don't know, man. It, it's just really disheartening, again, to see one of the biggest pop culture websites, one of the biggest pop culture YouTube channels on the internet, treating one of the best games of the past few years as if it's not deserving to be talked about in the same breath as The Last of Us or Ghost of Tsushima, despite its incredible quality and its incredible production values. So... I would say if there are any people from, if there are any gaming journalists out there, if there are any people, any representatives from big influential outlets that ever listen to this podcast, that ever listen to this episode, you know, (laughs) at the risk of sounding corny, you know, indie games are games the exact same way that Red Dead Redemption is a game, the exact same way that Call of Duty is a game. We should be giving independent games their due based on the merits of the game. We should be treating them with the same respect that we treat AAA releases with. If an indie game is a fantastic game, then we should be treating it like a fantastic game. We shouldn't be treating it like it's the overachieving kid sitting at the kid's table. Yeah, it kind of seems like Watch Mojo really... Uh... <laughs> really did not get the program uh, several years ago once it was, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, indie games are real games too, folks. I just really don't know how you can call a game like Hades, how you can remotely justify calling a game like Hades a hidden gem. By the way, Carrion and Streets of Rage 4 were also both on the list. Carrion, while it may not have been a game that blew us away, it still comes from Devolver Digital, who, while independent, is still a very uh, renowned video game creator and publisher. So, and that was one of their most publicized games from this past year. So, how you can call Carrion a hidden gem, how you can call Streets of Rage 4 a hidden gem, it just, it really feels like the further indie games advance, the more places like that seem out of touch. The counter argument to this, and I can already hear folks thinking this, is that, oh, well, like they're making that list for the person who is not a hardcore gamer, for the person who, you know, is not necessarily tuned in to things like the Game Awards or IGN's Game of the Year or whatever. But to me, I'm like, is that not the same audience that's going to play a game like Carrion or Hades? Like... My three-year-old nephew is not picking up Hades or Carrion. My mom is not playing Hades. You know, she's not on her 50th run through the underworld, you know. Like, so if if your plan is to talk to that market 
And if your plan is to tap into a casual fan base to turn them on to independent games, like that's kind of the wrong way to go about it to, to dismiss megaton releases as hidden gems when they're just not. I know this seems like something of a soapbox, but it was kind of an interesting thing. When you brought it up to me, I was like, oh man, like that, that just completely discredits their opinion in that piece for me, just full stop. And all right, and this is the last thing I'll say on this before we move on. Admittedly, I did agree with a couple of the choices on their list. However, to put games like Streets of Rage 4 and Kyrian, and especially Hades, you could, I guess, make the argument that maybe a lot of casual people hadn't been exposed to uh, Kyrian, maybe somehow hadn't seen that there was a new Streets of Rage 4 out, but you would have been actively trying to avoid news on Hades to not be seeing it everywhere. If you're even remotely interested in games, regardless of how casual you are, unless the only reason, unless the only reason you own a video game console is for a single game like Call of Duty or Madden, the only way you could have not heard about Hades almost constantly, especially for the past few months, is if you were actively trying not to. I mean, Hades is really hidden in the same way that I think Stranger Things is a hidden gem on Netflix. I mean, I, I just actually, while you were saying that, grabbed my Switch, loaded up the eShop, and here in the featured column, uh, here in 2020, the year of our Luigi, uh, it is sitting right here next to Among Us, Animal Crossing, and Super Smash Brothers. So, yeah, hidden gem indeed. If you want to uncover this hidden gem, you just need to load up the eShop. Exactly. <laughs> this hidden gem game of the year that nobody apparently knows about. Sorry, I know that was that was more of a rant than a news story, but <laughs> I That's just... fair. Everybody needs their soapbox from time to time. <laughs> <sighs> yes, I know we champion indie games all the time. Every week we have a different independent game that we showcase. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason we talk about all yeah. these indie games and that we try to spotlight all these indie games, even though we know that many of you out there already know about them. We made that. That was a major focus for us when we were building the structure of the show right before we even started. Uh, we knew that every week we were going to dedicate a segment to spotlighting independent games and their developers. So, yeah, they matter. Um, and, you know, major publications should recognize that bottom line but uh something that was interesting that, that caught my eye earlier this week was that the term nintendo ninjas was <laughs> trending on twitter a couple of days ago and i was like what could this possibly be and this kind of uncovered a pretty insane story where and take this with a grain of salt because we don't know how accurate it is but purported leaked documents have appeared from back in 2013 where something called the hacker enforcement proposal was being conducted by Nintendo seeking out the hacker Nemoid who was doing some like homebrew stuff on the Wii U, I guess back in 2013 and, and the 3DS. And some of the bullet points here in this hacker enforcement proposal is like, wait a minute, the Nintendo ninjas are real. <laughs> I'm looking at some of this and then like it says 6.30 p.m. contact team likely two individuals 
approach Nemoid as he arrives home or after he has entered. The first sequence of events and conversation normally happens very rapidly. Approach Nemoid in a friendly, non-threatening, professional, and courteous manner. Make introductions. Provide a business card. It's crazy. Like, they actually, like, apparently did private investigation on this hacker and confronted him at his home with ceased and desists and like expressed interest in pursuing like criminal referral. Um, and there's a bunch of documents to support this. So yeah, the news story here is that the Nintendo ninjas are real. Could you imagine doing a police style stakeout for Nintendo? <laughs> yes. I, isn't that crazy? Like, I'm looking at some of this as like some of the, and they, it's actually kind of like sweet how they word some of this. Cause it's like acknowledge his engineering slash programming aptitude, cite his stated intention of not facilitating piracy and relate Nintendo's concerns that his release of a hack could do exactly that. Like it's actually kind of adorable the way they were planning on tackling it, but under the guise of this like super threatening, like, the, the concept of Nintendo ninjas is always like kind of funny because we hear about people getting cease and desist letters, but we've never actually seen an action plan on the way they're going to privately investigate somebody like a 3DS and Wii U hacker. Again, we don't know the legitimacy of this 100%, but it's one of those things that's like, it's almost like too good to be fake. You know, like it's one of those things that just has an air of legitimacy to it. Enough to the point where it actually was trending on Twitter. So I I felt like I just had to mention it from the sheer novelty of the story. I feel like there's going to be some creepy pastas that spawn from this. Right. And I, I fear that even bringing it up might send the Nintendo ninjas after me. <laughs> well, they will apparently be very courteous and professional if they do come for us. I guess so. And well, it's basically been the worst kept secret on the Nintendo Switch for months now that the Prince of Persia Sands of Time remastered was coming to the Nintendo Switch. We've reported on it a couple times before to the point where, you know, it had been all but officially announced. Well, here we finally got that. I don't want to call it really an announcement, but the Prince of Persia Sands of Time remastered Switch version has appeared on Ubisoft's official store. <laughs> this is so funny to me. Because, like, yeah, Ubisoft has still not commented on the legitimacy of this, but, like, we've reported... I mean, over the past few months, I mean, this thing was revealed back in, like, September, which was 500 years ago. But the thing was announced at the Ubisoft Forward event, and we have since seen it crop up on various retailers for Switch, we saw it referenced for Switch on the game's website when it first was announced, and then that was pulled down. We've seen box art, and now it has actually appeared on Ubisoft's official online store. Like, what is happening? <laughs> it really does feel like the viewing public is just saying to Ubisoft, Hey, hey, Ubisoft, what you got over there? And Ubisoft is just, nothing. We got nothing. Hey, Ubisoft, <laughs> it seems like a Switch version of Prince of Persia, Sands of Time Remastered. No, no, it's not. No, no, it's not what I'm holding. You know, Ubisoft, it really looks like that's what you're holding. N no, no. Go away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's honestly what this entire process has felt like. It's just Ubisoft not wanting to admit that they have a Nintendo Switch version. I don't know if maybe they wanted to more bombastically reveal 
through some event or some trailer that they were going to be releasing it on the Nintendo Switch and all of these leaks and all of this information coming out just stole their thunder. And I do know that happens a lot. Leaks are the absolute bane of developers' existence. In order, to, in order to sell games, you have to be able to build interest in the games. And ideally, you would be the one manufacturing that. You would work on your own timeline. You would put out information as you saw fit to try to organically build the excitement for your title. However, these leaks happen and all this information is everywhere. And all of a sudden, people know a ton more well before you ever want them to know anything. And it can really kill an entire game's marketing plan. I would actually like to see some... I'd like to see somebody do a study or do some type of you know, data compiling to see if somehow that actually affects the sales or affects the, the performance of a game based on information that gets leaked versus how well uh, a studio is able to keep that under wraps. But uh, I mean, this is still going to sell well, I think. Sands of Time is a classic game from the PS2 GameCube era. And granted, the remake doesn't look that good compared to many, many other remakes that are coming out. But uh, there was a reason the game was a game of the year contender back when it released. And hopefully it'll still be fun now yeah there's i I think you touched on something there that i think is a big reason why they haven't officially revealed anyway the switch version and that's because they caught a lot of flack when they announced this thing initially for kind of more modern consoles and i think that they they don't want to come out and reveal this and show like an ugly switch port i think they want to have this thing and at a somewhat impressive state before they show it you know like they don't want to pop and fizzle at the initial announcement and then continue to pop and fizzle at a switch announcement so do you think they could possibly be doing a complete graphics overall um yeah i think i think they really could i don't know that it's going to be like dramatically different but i think it could be like kind of a situation where they come back and show it and it looks you know dramatically better maybe they showed it too early you know, maybe that's really what it was. Um, who knows? I, I We're just going to have to wait and see. But the fact of the matter is, it is real. And the wind has been taken out of the announcement sales, regardless. Uh, I'm with you. I, w- I would like to see that study. I know that's a really difficult thing to quantify. But um, it, it's, it's really interesting that we have for months now basically known that this has existed. And Ubisoft has just kept quiet about it. And speaking of being quiet about things, boy oh boy, Team Cherry has been quiet about the release date of Hollow Knight's Silk Song, but it seems like we may have a glimmer of hope to potentially learn about some release information for this game because the cover story of the upcoming December 31st issue of Edge Magazine is going to be all about Hollow Knight's Silk Song, and right there on the cover, they're teasing world-exclusive information inside of its pages, so... I'm kind of hoping that we get some sort of a release date. Hollow Knight, yet another amazing standout indie game. This one in the Metroidvania genre. There's a lot of really, really good Metroidvanias out there, but even among them, Hollow Knight stands out. It's, oh man, uh, like Felix the Cat meets Bug Fables. Kind of aesthetic. It's got this weird, dark, cartoonish 
look to it, but it's it's such a great game, so deep. And if you're looking for a challenge, there's definitely a challenge to be found in Hollow Knight. But the game was actually fantastic. I actually uh, uh, shout out to Fan Gamer. They have a gorgeous collector's edition of the first Hollow Knight available on FanGamer.com that I am very lovingly actually looking at right now. But uh, yeah, the first game was absolutely fantastic. We've been waiting on information about the sequel for a long time with bated breath. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the release of the magazine. Hopefully we do get to find out when the game does get released. And I hope it's soon. Our 2021 is already looking like a pretty decent year in terms of releases. So I don't know. Uh, We're already talking about our most anticipated releases for 2021. Maybe if this one gets announced, maybe that could start edging up the list. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm going to really be excited uh, to to hear about this whenever if it's not in the magazine hopefully they get at least a, like a vague like idea of a release date even just a spring 2021 summer 2021 just even that would be nice like and i think that is probably the extent of what we'll get if we do get release information because i mean you already know they're gonna save the hard date for an indie world showcase end of the show kind of thing you know I mean, yeah. this is a major major deal yeah hollow knight silk song would definitely be a we've got one more announcement in this indie world yeah. showcase kind of deal yeah totally so i think if anything i think this edge magazine story is going to have some new gameplay details or whatever maybe some vague release information and then i think as we get closer we'll get a hard date in like an indie world showcase but either way excited for that loved the first game and uh, yeah, can't wait for more. And just to finish off the news drop, if you have been playing a lot of your Nintendo Switch this year, you should have received an email from Nintendo. Nintendo has been sending out a lot of emails over the past week, especially to its different users through their email addresses attached to your Nintendo accounts, basically detailing how much time you've been spending on Nintendo's hybrid handheld console. It tells you, I think, your lifetime hours spent playing the Nintendo Switch, how many hours you've spent in the past year playing the Nintendo Switch, how many games you have played in the past year on your Nintendo Switch, basically giving you your full uh, numbers breakdown of how much of a life you don't have. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty bad. And they give you little, like, kind of classifications, like mine is core gamer. You're a skilled, experienced gamer who is always up for a challenge. Just got a little picture of Bowser there <laughs> next to my icon. That's, you know, that's kind of cool, I guess. They're going to, you know, it's it's really interesting because, yeah, it is weird to confront those numbers. They break down your, like, top five most played games in 2020. Uh, they compare things to last year. Um, they break down even down to the day that you were most active. Apparently April 11th was like a lit day for me in the Nintendo switch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's really, uh, really extensive. They really drill down deep and it's kind of cool to see your year in Nintendo switch review and confronting some of those numbers is horrifying. But what about your numbers? Are they as horrifying as Seth's are? Uh, We'd actually really like to see, Please reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. Send us pictures. Yeah. Tweet them at us. Send, a, send them to us on Facebook. We'll geek out about who spent the most hours in Nickelodeon cart racers or something. 500 plus. <laughs> exactly. 500 hours in Nickelodeon cart racers. 
But in addition to reaching out to us on social media, please do also subscribe to All In, a Nintendo podcast on whatever service you are listening to us on. Again, thank you for making us part of your weekly rotation and hanging out with us each and every Saturday to talk about this wild and wonderful world of Nintendo. Well, I, th- I think I can kind of speak for both of us and probably everybody listening when I say that 2020 sort of felt like a bit of a mountain to climb. Am, am I wrong? <laughs> I see what you did there, Seth. I see what you did <laughs> you there. You like that? Yeah, I like it. You like that segue? <laughs> no, it uh, it certainly was. It certainly was, and we all need a little bit of a, uh, help, you know, a helping hand getting through this year. And, you know, self-care and mental health is definitely important. And those are very prominent subjects of our Indie Showcase this week because we are finally tackling... One of the most critically acclaimed independent games of all time, Celeste. Yeah, so this Christmas we are taking a trip up a snow-covered mountain in Maddie Thorson's classic masterpiece, Celeste. That's really, it really was an instant classic, right? Yeah, Instant Classic was nominated for Game of the Year in 2018 at the Game Awards. It won Best Independent Game at the Game Awards that year. And just from the moment it came out, it was just showered with universal acclaim, universal accolades. It immediately shot to the top of most people's uh, Games of the Year list. Just uh, uh, just an absolute triumph coming from the studio formerly known as Matt Makes Games. Yeah, and I mean, that was kind of the the cool thing about it is like it, it, it is a true indie game story where I was reading about the development of the game and this game had like really humble beginnings as a kind of game jam, like four day development prototype kind of thing where Matty Thorson and Noel Berry both programmed the original version of this game in just four days and made like 30 levels. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. And now it's become this, you know, indie game superstar. It really has. And for those who are unfamiliar with Celeste, Celeste is basically just a platformer. It's a tough as nails platformer. It is, especially when you get toward the end of the game, a pixel perfect platformer yeah but the gameplay itself is relatively simple just get from point a to point b using a jump and some air dashing but mixed in with that relatively simple gameplay are these themes and the themes are what really drove the entire experience home yes and celeste is a game about overcoming Yes. The main character, Madeline, shows up to Celeste Mountain. And by the way, I, I I can't have been the only person who thought that the main character of Celeste was going to be named Celeste. It was kind of a Legend of Zelda uh, effect for me. Right. But I, yeah. I just assumed that the character in Celeste was Celeste. I didn't know Celeste, you know, was the mountain until I played it for myself. Yeah, it's literally called Mount Celeste. And I mean, in a strange sort of way, the mountain is kind of a main character because that is sort of the entire conceit is to climb the mountain. You know, Madeline has to sort of face her inner demons and, and like you say, overcome the things going on inside her in a very real way. Yeah, the game is very much uh, an allegory for 
depression and self-doubt and hopefully rising above those feelings to to be able to love yourself and to be able to appreciate the things that you are capable of. And right. And I mentioned this before on the show, but honestly, one of my favorite moments from the game is right at the end of the prologue. When you finish, you know, learning how to jump and dash and and do most of what the game requires you to do and you beat the prologue, there's just a little simple line of text that appears in the middle of the screen. And that is, you can do this. Yes. So powerful. Yeah, it's, it's really, really simple. And in game, it's Madeline saying this to herself. Uh, I don't ultimately think she believes it when she says it to herself uh, at that juncture in the game, at least. But in game, it is Madeline talking to herself. But, you know, it it is also very much the Celeste team speaking directly to the player. Yeah, because like like you said earlier, the game is tough as nails and it is a huge challenge to overcome the game is, you know, especially in some parts, brutally difficult, uh, especially if you're going for 100%. I mean, this is going to be, in terms of 2D platformers, one of the very toughest to 100%. It is not for the faint of heart. And it is something that, again, you're going to have to overcome, both thematically and literally. Yeah, this, just getting through the core game is still probably going to be one of the hardest gaming experiences that you'll have from any indie game, but it is definitely a mountain that is capable of being clum. I'm sure clum is the past tense of climb, (laughs) but uh, that's the whole reason the game is hard is the entire game is essentially set up as almost like this this therapy uh, it's almost as if the game right. is showing you what you're capable of almost as if the game is telling you that you're better than you realize you are and it sets this challenge in front of you specifically so that you can overcome it obviously any game designer wants players to play through their game wants players to rise to the challenge of their game But Celeste is really the first game and the only game to date that I've ever played that wants the player to take on the challenge for themselves. Mm. And that's what really sets Celeste apart from so, so many other games is the gameplay is there in service of the metaphor. It's there in service of the themes and the messages of the game. It's not just there to be a fun or hard uh, platformer. It is there as a coded way, essentially, a way to tell you that you are good enough through jumps and air dashes, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and I think that there's a lot of like, there's a lot of different themes going on here. There's the idea of like accepting yourself the you know quite literally accepting the parts of yourself that may not be traditionally good accepting the the good and the bad in yourself and coming to even love those parts and actually coming to realize that you might need those parts of you they're all kind of part of the formula that is you and the you know the thing that you may have cast aside 
initially might be the thing that you need to overcome your obstacles. Like that, that sort of, you know, thematic power. There's the idea of like, it's kind of okay. Like if you feel downtrodden and like, you know, be surrounded with good friends and people who can uplift you and stuff. There's a lot of really like heavy narrative stuff in here. And like the game is fun and it is difficult and it is like really perfect feeling 2d platforming. And I think that's important. And I think that's a huge reason why the game has been as successful as it is, but that all sort of, it almost feels like when you consider like the strong themes and the strong narrative here, you almost kind of forget that it's also just a really good game. (laughs) You know, like all of this game's pieces are all really, really high standard. And the narrative though is somehow what sticks out. Well, the narrative is so very powerful and it's essentially told through for the most part, at least it's told through the player actually playing the game. And the further along they get, the more they realize that, you know, the game is telling them the truth, but you know, outside of the meta narrative, there is actually a narrative within the game going on. And there's a lot of really, really interesting characters you'll wind up meeting. There's a lot of really interesting interactions you'll wind up having. One of the first characters you wind up meeting on your journey up Celeste Mountain is this laid back, maybe even stoner uh, mountain (laughs) climber. Theo. And Theo is, he's great. He's got this obsession with taking selfies whenever you're around. He's, he's so bright and optimistic. He's always wondering why anybody could ever have a negative thought in their heads. He's he's great. I like Theo. I, I love Theo. Well, and that's sort of like the kind of... And it almost makes you wonder if we're kind of seeing Theo almost from Madeline's perspective. Like, I'm not trying to get into like, you know, that's just a theory kind of thing, but... It almost, you know, when like you're feeling depressed and and like you feel like everybody is so much happier than you are, like that's sort of maybe what what's being driven at there. But the fact that you can even take just a charming little character in Celeste and get that read from it, I think just, you know, drives home how much this game is trying to say, maybe without even intending to say it. And um and yeah, I mean the characters are great. I kind of spoke vaguely about Madeline's inner demons, but Madeline's inner demons do take physical shape in the form of Badeline. Yeah, everybody has that little inner voice inside their head that if they mess up or they wind up getting embarrassed or they have any type of negative emotion, they've got that little inner voice that's telling them that, you know, you're not good enough, you're worthless, why did you do that, you're stupid. And Madeline is exactly that voice, exactly that part of Madeline given physical form. In this game, Madeline quite literally has to fight her own inner demons while she's climbing up Celeste Mountain. And this is explained in game as uh, you meet this eccentric old lady at the base of Celeste Mountain who very clearly... uh, who very clearly lost her mind a long time ago. But uh, she does explain that Celeste Mountain, aside from being an incredibly challenging climb, is a very special place. Right. Uh, and meeting Madeline and having Madeline's inner demons give physical form, 
Uh, we're not going to spoil too much for you, but that's not going to be the only special thing that happens while you're playing through this game. There are some really, really interesting moments that occur and some other characters you meet that you have some, uh, let's just say tense <laughs> uh, moments with. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, again, that's to say nothing of how I, I really don't want to discourage you from playing the game by hearing us talk about how difficult it is or, or whatever, because that is the whole point to go back to what you were saying earlier. Like the point is it is difficult and it is something you're going to have to overcome, but you can do this. Those four words really do sum up this entire game. And, you know, to that end, the, one of the things that I really like this game does is on nearly every screen of the game, there is a collectible strawberry and it almost reminds me of like the, the bandages and super meat boy, how yeah, basically they're, they're kind of like just it, they're, they're placed like in a really annoying way to where it's going to be like kind of hard for you to get to them. <laughs> like you could get through the screens themselves with, you know, if you chose to ignore the strawberries, you could get through them easily enough but it's going to be really tricky to grab those strawberries, you know? Yeah, at the end of the day, this is ultimately still a video game, and there are several video game tropes within Celeste. And yes, one of them is the the mandatory platformer collectible. Uh, you, you do have the strawberries, and the game obviously keeps a tally of how many of the strawberries you've been able to collect. You can see how many within each level you still need to pick up. As a matter of fact, when you go back and replay levels, you can start from, there are uh, several different places you can start a level from, and each of those individual starting points will tell you how many of those strawberries from that part of the level you have. So it's if you are trying to complete the game, uh, the, the game does keep track of what you need to pick up and where and how many and stuff like that. So... As yes, uh, I guess the game realized that completing it and getting everything was going to be difficult enough. Keeping track of it, at least, was the least they could do for them. Yeah, no, it, and it is going to be difficult. I mean, in addition to the strawberries out of your way, there are also the collectible B-side cassette tapes, uh, which unlock kind of an even harder version of the of the chapters, like B-side level. Um, there's the Pico Eight unlockable uh levels where you can actually play through like the original prototype that's so cool it is really cool and there's actually like quite a bit to do here in the game and again if you're going for 100 percent, then i mean you're in for a ride you are in for a ride it's going to take you about six hours uh just to play through the core game yeah on your first playthrough and that's not trying to collect all the strawberries. That's just going start to finish, trying to complete just the core game. There are seven chapters. There's a prologue and there's seven chapters, which doesn't sound like much. However, uh, with as difficult as the game is, it's it's almost that mentality of NES hard of the game padding yes. its length because of the difficulty. Because even though the levels themselves aren't necessarily super long. They are going to take a while to get through just because of how many tries it's going to take. And, you know, if you see speed runs on YouTube of people beating this game in like 10 minutes, 
that's not really going to be indicative of <laughs> your first no. probably 15 playthroughs of this game. You will die thousands of times and the game and will luckily, keep a counter. <laughs> exactly. And luckily that's another thing the game keeps track of for you is exactly how many times you have died in any given stage. And while it might seem discouraging to see all the deaths, all the times you've died, all the times you failed on a screen, the game actually, you know, explains it a little bit to try to, to embrace those, you know, we don't always succeed. We're not always going to succeed at everything we do. And the game actually within the narrative does, you know, explain it, you know, embrace those attempts. Yes. You know, because without those attempts, you could not have succeeded. 100%. Yes. So I do like that they do that as well. Now, even beyond the strawberries and the B-side tapes, there might even be some harder challenges within the game to get into. Uh, uh, We very, very, very highly recommend playing through the core game of Celeste. If that's not completely apparent at this point. However, if you are trying to go for 100%, 100%ing Celeste is going to be one of the hardest things that you ever do in a video game. It's doable. There's not necessarily a lot of monotonous busy work you have to to deal with, as in you know many other games. It's not going to pad out your hours with a bunch of unnecessary fetch quests. However, right. just the sh- the sheer difficulty. The core game itself is already punishingly difficult, but if you do try to go after the B sides and even the harder challenges, then if you consider yourself a hardcore gamer, if you consider yourself a completionist, if you are really, really looking for a challenge, then Celeste is going to be right up your alley. And I think that that's something that's kind of interesting about this game, because like we touched on earlier, the core gameplay, it's just really tight, precise, you know, almost pixel perfect, frame perfect in some cases, uh, platforming, but it does have a very Nintendo sensibility, right? And as a matter of fact, Maddie Thorson has called that out specifically that they took direct inspiration from old NES games and, and directly, you know, they, they were playing super Mario brothers three extensively and super Mario maker and stuff to try to kind of capture that feel. And I think they nailed it. And, and I think it also kind of speaks to the classic Nintendo design philosophy of like, very simple on the face of it, but very, very difficult to master. Like the core gameplay couldn't be more simple, but the things that are done within the the game's level design, the extra challenges, there is a lot to tackle here, but you can do this. And what each of the chapters of the game does throw its own twist into platforming. It won't necessarily always be jumping from platform to platform, they do throw in some really interesting wrinkles with the gameplay. Uh, there's some, I, I, I don't even know what you call them, spaces of dark void or something. Right. They do some really interesting things with momentum. They do some really interesting things with, I guess you would might call them power-ups. I'm specifically talking about the golden feather. There's like ways to that they that they implement to get additional 
midair dashes and stuff. I mean, they get a lot of mileage out of a very simplistic moveset just in the level design. Yeah, so it's not like for six hours you're just going to be going from platform to platform. They do introduce some new twists to the gameplay mechanics, even though Madeline doesn't really update her moveset, even though you don't really level her up, uh, they do throw new wrinkles in every once in a while. And of course, each level is punctuated by a couple different narrative scenes that play out. And they're all, you know, you just want to give Madeline a hug. You really do. (laughs) And that's, to be honest too, that's to say nothing of like the, presentational value of the game. I mean, the game has got a fairly simplistic pixel art style, but I really love the color palette on display. I really love the the animation and the like kind of pastel colors. Um, I, I think the game is really beautiful to look at in its own kind of unique way. I don't think there's too many games that look exactly like Celeste, even though it's pixel art, but it's kind of its own specific thing too. Yeah, it, it almost feels as if the pixels are enlarged somehow because uh-huh. the character, the character art, the character models are not very detailed, at least when it comes to the gameplay screen. We do see more uh, defined character portraits. Each character does have a hand-drawn portrait to go yes. along with their dialogue that gives you a much better idea of what they actually look like in-game. And the end of each of the chapters also has kind of this little hand-drawn uh, in-screen that very oftentimes has the characters on there. So <laughs> the the character models may be really pixelated, but you do still get an idea of what the characters actually look like through their character portraits through the end of the yeah. game and through the end of chapter cutscenes. because visually, yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the game looks really, really good specifically because of the animations, but yeah, you can definitely tell that NES influence there with these kind of almost engorged pixels that the characters have. And then the music, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I mean, go ahead Lena and gush Rain's, about Lena Rain. <laughs> Lena Rain's soundtrack to Celeste is it's gotta be if I were to sit down and and like kind of nail down my top ten favorite video game soundtracks, Celeste would probably be on that list. Um it's that good. It is probably God, it's so hard because like there's so many amazing independent games and so many yeah. amazing independent game soundtracks, but Celeste is probably my favorite indie game soundtrack. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, like I almost like, I want to gush about it and I want to get into more specifics, but I almost just want you guys to go and play the game and discover it for yourself because the things that she was able to convey with the soundtrack, the sense of like, just all the, all the moments in the game, because there is a sense of like adventure to some of the, to some of the songs, but it can also just in those same motifs, like it can convey like the sense of like the, the mental stuff, the depression, the sense of helplessness, the sense of doubt. Like it's just a beautiful soundtrack. It's one of the, it's one of those ones that I just listen to on occasion, just whenever I want to revisit that world in my own head. It, it feels so specifically Celeste. (laughs) 
I do see. And there's a lot of people that really feel the same way about you in terms of how good the score is. Lena Rain was actually nominated herself for a game award back in 2018 when the game came out for best score. And had Red Dead Redemption 2 not also come out that year, Lena Rain might currently be in possession of a game award for her music. And she has gone on to just, you know, do all kinds of work in other in other games, I think she did some music for Minecraft. She's currently working on Chicory with Greg Labanov, who was our very first guest on the show. And uh, obviously, Greg, you know, worked very closely and actually made Wander Song in the same house as they were working on Celeste. So there's a lot of shared DNA there. Yeah, there's Wander Song, Celeste, and now Eichenfell kind of form this holy trinity of independently developed games. Yes, yes. And then the DLC, like they released the farewell DLC uh, for free, like just adding it to the game, uh, adding a kind of ninth like epilogue chapter, which had 100 new levels and 40 minutes of brand new music. And uh, man, I, it really sends off the game in a, in a pretty beautiful way and deals with yet another kind of emotional facet to the game. And I just... I really loved that. And if you get the game, it's just already there. That's just part of the Celeste experience. And uh, I mean, that's just one more positive mark for the game, I think. Well, the game's certainly not lacking in positive marks. And again, we've been gushing about the game for a while, but there is a very good reason for it. It is, you know, people throw around this term indie darling. It is very much an indie megastar. Yeah. Celeste for an entire year, basically defined the entire spectrum of independent game development. And you could even make the argument that Celeste even helped the entire independent industry, the independent games development industry, take a full step forward with its release. Oh, totally. And and I think that one of the things that, you know, this game also won the Games for Impact Award. And I think that what one of the big reasons why is that this is a very special game that was really special to a lot of people. It really compartmentalized feelings and thoughts that a lot of people were having within themselves and maybe didn't really know how to unpack. I mean, all of us have our own mountains to climb, you know, and playing through Celeste might help you work through some of that stuff. And, and, the themes and messages therein may very well resonate with you. It certainly did for me and and many, many others. And uh, it's one of those games that just you play it and it might just leave you forever changed. I mean, you're going to get mad at the game. You may even abandon the game for a while. You may decide you don't even want to finish it, but take it from us getting to the end of Celeste, climbing your mountain. It's, going to be one of the most cathartic one of the most rewarding experiences that you can have on a nintendo switch you can do this but have you done it to reach out to us and let us know how much you enjoyed maddie thorson's masterpiece celeste reach out to us on facebook and twitter and tell us all of your favorite experiences with this pixel perfect platformer but i think that's enough looking inward i think it's time for us to start looking to the future Now, Christmas and Hanukkah have ended. All of our dreams came true. Every present we wanted to get, we got. But it's a new day now, and those no longer matter. It's time to start looking to 2021 and to see what we need to start putting on next year's holiday wish list. This week, we're talking about our most anticipated games of 2021. 
Yes, we have got a lot to look forward to in 2021. A ton of amazing games. Of course, some stuff kind of slipped through the cracks of 2020, of course, due to the pandemic. But as a result, we're going to have an amazing slate of games, an amazing slate of things to look forward to in the world of Nintendo in 2021. So yeah, let's get into it, man. Yeah, just looking at this list of games that are releasing on the Nintendo Switch in 2021 has me so incredibly excited. Yeah, and to that end, we are actually starting off our list with our number five, not exclusively with a game, as much as an iteration on the Nintendo Switch hardware itself. Yes, we have talked about this from the inception, really, of the show. The rumors have circulated. We've reported on it. Everybody's reported on it. I don't think there's a doubt in anybody's mind that 2021 will see the release of some sort of Switch Pro or some new iteration Uh, Some improvement, some upgrade of the Switch hardware. Yeah, this isn't something that we hope we see. We did do a list of games that we wish would happen. And even though the Nintendo Switch Pro, quote unquote, hasn't been officially announced yet, I mean, it's coming. Every sign points directly to the release of a new version of the Nintendo Switch being released in, you know, probably... Uh, toward the end of first quarter, beginning of second quarter, around springtime of 2021. And the reason that it's not higher up the list is because it hasn't been officially announced and we don't really know what to expect from it yet. We can make some guesses, some educated guesses. It's probably going to have a little bit better battery life. It's, It's got to have 4K support, maybe not on the handheld screen, but it's got to have 4K support on the television screen. But Outside of little things like that, we really don't know what to expect yet. We are very hopeful, and I hope it knocks our socks off when it comes out. Yeah, I mean, we did a whole top five about our sort of hopes and dreams for this rumored console. And, um, I mean, there's a lot to speculate on. There's a lot of educated guesses we can make. There's been a lot of reports about things that we could kind of think, you know, improve Joy-Cons, whatever. But we don't have any concrete evidence We don't have any official announcement or anything as of yet. It's totally possible that the Switch Pro will get announced in early 2021 for release, like you said. I I kind of agree with that logic, that sort of end of Q1, beginning of Q2 window. We've speculated in the past, maybe like a late March, early April sort of thing, especially with the release of like games like Monster Hunter Rise and stuff, kind of in that time slot. Um, I think that's the perfect place for it. I don't think they're going to want to have that launching in the fall because that's going to be when the PS5 and Xbox Series X really are going to come out swinging. You know, that's when it's going to actually be stacked up against things like Halo and stuff like this. So I think they're going to want to capitalize on that spring time frame for this. Well, I'm certainly excited for the Nintendo Switch Pro because I feel like that might start to bridge the gap between a lot of the AAA games that have excluded the Switch in a lot of ways because the Switch compared to the compared to Microsoft and Sony's toys is an underpowered console. However, we've seen Control work really really well on the Nintendo Switch already using the cloud service and uh, I I'm excited to see what a potential Switch Pro could do for all of these amazing AAA releases that has that have as of yet come to Nintendo's console. So 
We'll see what happens. Now, something we did finally get an announcement on, an announcement we've been waiting, it feels like 20 years for yes. at this point. Uh, we are so, so excited for the release of Neo, The World Ends With You. Now, we've sung the praises of the original game from the Nintendo DS a, a ton. It's one of the best handheld RPGs. The stylized anime slash street art kind of aesthetic, the the dual screen battles that you fought, the incredibly engaging narrative, just everything about The World Ends With You on the Nintendo DS really clicked. And despite the fact that it is being condensed down to a single screen now for the Nintendo Switch with the sequel, just like we said when we reported on its announcement a little while ago, we are very interested to see how this game is going to utilize the Switch's unique interface the same way the first one uh, took full advantage of the DS's unique interface. I just, I cannot wait for this game to come out, buddy. Yeah, no, me either. It's It looks awesome. That, that reveal trailer was great. I think a lot of folks, us included, were taken by surprise uh, when the sequel was announced. I don't think, you know, a lot of fans really didn't think we were ever going to get a proper sequel. But it's real. It exists, and it's coming next year. And um, man, I mean, like, there's a lot of stuff about it that is unknown, and I can't wait to learn more information about it. But I mean, just to echo what you said, the world ends with you. The first one is one of the best games on the Nintendo DS, and is an absolute standout uh, role-playing game. I, I loved it, and uh, I can't wait to see the evolution of that formula here and the kind of the just the story, like the. the the world ends with you has such a unique vibe, a unique world, a unique narrative that um, I'm really excited to kind of see this new take on it with new characters and like the, the music. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited for this. But moving into our number three, another long anticipated sequel, another sequel that we never thought was going to happen. No kidding. I mean, com coming completely out of left field, I don't think anybody was expecting them to announce a new Pokemon Snap called New Pokemon Snap. Fairly apt title, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm so stoked for this. I really think that when this comes out, it's going to be just a perfect escape, especially if they tackle it in kind of like a more, you know, there's a lot of speculation on what kind of game this is going to be. Admittedly, we've only seen that initial reveal trailer, but if it's going to have kind of a more open world vibe with like those beautiful graphics that we saw on display in the trailer, I think this is going to be just a great little piece of escapism for a lot of people. Yeah, it's weird to say this about a Pokemon game, but the original one really was kind of a cult classic. It was this on-rails arcade shooter style game, but it was adapted to the much more family-friendly Nintendo ideology, and they mixed, they switched out a gun with a camera and some apples instead of grenades. And as this player character, you just stuck yourself in this little pod and very leisurely traversed these gorgeous locales, gorgeous for the time, at least on the Nintendo 64, interacting with Pokemon and trying to, you know, throw in apples to try to get them to move into certain places to hopefully interact with other Pokemon and just finding out what could happen if you were able to get this Pokemon over here. Seeing Pokemon evolve in real time was really cool. And there was just a lot to love despite the relatively constrained experience uh, on the original game. It 
is still beloved to this day. This game has had a sustained fan base for, you know, 20, what, three some odd years since it came out? Yeah, the original came out in 99. Yeah. But it was just a really cool, fun arcade experience that a lot of people have very fond memories of from when they were a kid. And that, I mean, nostalgia is very, very powerful. Nintendo's been able to capitalize on nostalgia for a long time. Yeah. But... It's just one of those things where some sequels to long dormant franchises get announced and the overall reaction is just, well, you waited too long, guys. Sorry, there's no interest anymore. But with Pokemon Snap, it seems with really any Nintendo franchise, uh, that interest is just always there. Yeah, no, it, it seems like Pokemon is kind of at a bit of a fever pitch right now with the explosion of the popularity of the Pokemon trading card game with, you know, Pokemon Sword and Shield being massively successful. Um, Of course, the DLC expansions, which were great and also massively successful. Pokemon is kind of as popular as it's ever been. And, I mean, with the anniversary coming up, with, you know, new Pokemon Snap, you know, coming up next year, it seems like that fever pitch is only going to be stronger. And yeah, like you said, the nostalgia, I think, plays such a major role in this with Pokemon specifically. I've said this on the show before, like people that grew up, you know, in the 90s, like when we were like, you know, kind of in that preteen like stage right there in the late 90s, we were, and I've used this phrase before, they sniped us, man. They <laughs> absolutely sniped us. They had us pegged right there. We were right at that you know, just the crux of Pokemon popularity. And it kind of seems like we're getting to somewhat of a semblance of that popularity again. And for this game to come out right at the height of that, I think is perfect. And yeah, I'm just, I'm ready to, you know, get new Pokemon Snap. I'm ready to bring my Switch to a local Blockbuster. (laughs) Print off some stickers. That's right. I always forget about that. I always get reminded, but I always forget about it. But for our younger listeners out there, what Seth is talking about, uh, back when there was such a thing as VHS rental stores, (laughs) we can maybe talk about VHS some other time during a retrospective, a deep retrospective, but Blockbuster, you could go, you could rent movies, and occasionally they did promotions with movies and video games as they started to become more popular. And one of the things you could do with your Pokemon Snap cartridge was go to Blockbuster and put the cartridge into this little top loader device and you could print off, you could actually print off the pictures that you took in game. It might seem rudimentary by today's standards considering that you know we have access to all these different cameras and all these different technologies but this was really really cool for us back in the day trumped only by the Game Boy camera but that's a story (laughs) for another day. But yeah, so many wonderful memories. You know, I could just, I think of Pokemon Snap and I just see Jinko Jeans, Trapper Keepers and Surge Soda (laughs) sitting around a CRTV with four controllers plugged in to a Nintendo 64. Oh man, such good times. And I think that's exactly what this is going to tap into for a lot of folks when this, when this finally comes out. And I, I cannot wait. Yeah, I can tap into my childhood all at once, too. I am absolutely here for it. We cannot wait for this game to come out 
For our number two, just like the previous two entries, we're starting to see a pattern here. Yet another sequel that we didn't really think we would get. But last year, Nintendo surprised a lot of people by announcing that a sequel to Breath of the Wild was in development. Oh. Now, Breath of the Wild is on the short list of greatest games ever made. I still think it's within the top five best reviewed games of all time. It's just it's just an absolute masterpiece from top to bottom. And that's even within the Zelda franchise, even within games like Link to the Past, Ocarina of Time, Link's Awakening, many of which are also considered to be among the greatest games ever made. And Breath of the Wild is just an absolute next level experience from top to bottom. Just this massive, massive open world. You could just go do whatever you want to and somehow we're getting another one. Yeah, and it seems like it's going to have a much darker edge to it. Um, it seems like we're going to actually get a little bit of, you know, proper Ganon in the game, perhaps. We could speculate, and we have on the show in the previous episodes, speculated on what we think might happen, what our hopes and dreams are for Breath of the Wild 2. But the point is, we are just hungry for more. And I have to imagine this game is coming out sometime in 2021. Due to COVID, I'm sort of leaning more towards this being Nintendo's big kind of fall game at this point. There was a time that I thought that this was going to be kind of a spring 2021 game. I don't think that's the case anymore, unfortunately. Uh, but I, whenever this game does finally release, my schedule will clear itself. Yeah, there's no reason to think that Breath of the Wild 2 will not be also on the short list of best games on the Nintendo Switch. We have seen when the, the few times that Nintendo has released sequels on the same console, uh, minus Zelda 2 The Adventures of Link, uh, they've <laughs> been really, really successful. And I think Super Mario Galaxy 2 is kind of the best example of that. Yeah, yeah. This this is not even... It's funny because a lot of people view this as being kind of a quick turnaround, but really, it's not. Because if you stop and think about it, can, if this game does indeed come out in fall 2021, I mean, that'll be four and a half years after Breath of the Wild 1. So it's not like a super fast turnaround. Of course, they had people working on DLC for Breath of the Wild and stuff, but I mean, there's still got to be, by the time this comes out, several years of proper full-scale development on Breath of the Wild 2. So that's why I think it's got to be next year. And it's definitely, definitely one of my most anticipated just things of next year. I cannot wait. And before we get to number one, again, 2021 is shaping up to be such an amazing year for releases that we did have to shout out a few games right here before we get to our top spot. So I just want to shout out two just really quickly that are actually both coming out on the same day. Some of my most anticipated games of 2021 coming out on March 26 is both Balan Wonderworld and Monster Hunter Rise. Um, yeah. They both yeah. look amazing. Like Monster Hunter Rise, I put a ton of time into World, really enjoyed it. But the fact that Rise is coming to Switch... Uh, I mean, looks fantastic every time we get new gameplay from it. Um, Balan Wonderworld, you know, I, I love this style of platformer. Uh, I love the pedigree behind it. I love the art. Um, just everything I'm seeing from that game looks amazing. And I just the fact that they're coming out 
both on the same day is going to be like Sophie's choice for me. <laughs> well, for me, I'd, I man, I, there's so much coming out. I'm really excited for no yeah. more heroes three. I'm really excited for, Oh yeah. For me, for me personally, uh, I know I might be one of 10 people who plays the game, but our type final two coming next year to the Nintendo switch. I really am, uh, super super stoked for that game it was the r-type final was one of my favorite shoot 'em ups on the playstation 2 i just had a really soft spot in my heart for that game and i'm really really excited for r-type final 2 honestly didn't think i would ever see one just another sequel coming out in 2021 that we never thought we would get uh, another one that I'm really excited for. I'm excited to finally get the chance to play Disco Elysium when it releases on the Switch next year. Yes. Obviously, we are so amazingly excited for the release of Scott Pilgrim here in a couple weeks on January 14th. Cannot wait. That is, I, again, uh, Seth and myself's favorite beat em up of all time. It's Straight up. Absolutely fantastic. Seth, I know you're excited for Spelunky and Spelunky 2 next year. Oh, please can't wait yeah and we we honestly could go on and on and on just look up a list of currently announced games releasing for the nintendo switch next year and tell me that you don't get excited going down that but (laughs) again we could we could really stay here forever talking about all of those amazing upcoming releases however uh there is one thing even beyond all of those that we are beyond stoked for come 2021 yeah i mean when we looked at kind of everything that was coming of course there's an amazing swath of games coming to the nintendo switch in 2021 so much to be excited about but when we stopped and thought about it when we thought about how big of a year 2021 is going to be for nintendo's anniversaries it's going to be the 35th anniversary of both the zelda and metroid franchise It's going to be the 25th anniversary of the Pokemon franchise. Like, we've got some major anniversaries coming. We talked earlier about how it's going to be the 40th anniversary for Donkey Kong. Like, it's it's going to be a huge year for anniversaries. And seeing the way that Nintendo really blew the doors off of Super Mario's 35th anniversary for our number one spot, we are the most excited to just see how Nintendo is going to tackle all of this anniversary stuff in what has got to be one of their biggest anniversary years in their history. Yes, Metroid is celebrating its 35th anniversary. The Legend of Zelda is celebrating its 35th anniversary. We can assume that Breath of the Wild 2 is going to wind up playing into that somehow. We don't really know how yet. However, we certainly anticipate that it will be part of the Zelda 35th anniversary celebration. And even beyond that, Pokemon as an IP, as a franchise, is celebrating its silver anniversary, its 25th anniversary. So we can expect some huge announcements from Nintendo and the Pokemon company regarding these franchises again with everything they did for super mario and his 35th anniversary the 35th anniversary of super mario brothers releasing that uh commemorative game and watch mario kart live re-releasing mario 3d world and bowser's fury um mario uh super mario 35 that battle royale platformer and then of course the massive cherry on the cake the long rumored mario 3d all-stars in addition to the pins, man, I wish I could have got some. All that amazing merch. Uh, 
Nintendo really went further than I think anybody was really expecting. And they have set a pretty big expectation for two of their other biggest game franchises going into their 35th anniversary. And man, are we all for it. Yeah, Pokemon too. Like when you think about Pokemon and how, again, we just spoke earlier about how massive Pokemon is. And just, I shudder to think of the ways that they could blow this out. Much like we had the rumors of 3D All-Stars or what ended up becoming 3D All-Stars. There have been a lot of rumors brewing about this supposed Pokemon Master Collection, which, if true, would be absolutely insane. And, I mean, like, I don't even know what I'll do with myself if that's true. And, (laughs) like, we've got new Pokemon Snap presumably happening. We've got, you know, the potential for another remake of, you know, potential, you know, Let's Go Johto maybe happening. Um, and that's just Pokemon. When you consider Zelda, you know, what if they do a collection of, you know, Wind Waker, Skyward Sword, and Twilight Princess? What if they did something like put four swords on the Switch with online co-op and, you know, have the release of Breath of the Wild 2 for Metroid? What if they bring out the Metroid Prime Trilogy finally to Switch? And, you know, what if there's a new 2D Metroid, which has been rumored for like the past two years? I mean, again... It bears repeating, 2021, even just in terms of speculation, the things that we know, the things that we don't know, it's such an exciting year, and the anniversary stuff really has us the most excited out of all of it. Yeah, and just talking about the Metroid stuff, we did quite a bit of speculation with our friend Tim from the Nintendo Dads a while back when we were talking about Metroid Prime 4. And we were just frothing at the mouth thinking about what they could potentially release next year for the Metroid series alone. And we've already got confirmation again of Breath of the Wild 2. We've already got new Pokemon Snap. We've already got Pokemon Unite, hashtag PokeMOBA, hashtag still trying to make that a thing. (laughs) But uh, as big as the year is going to be in 2021, it is going to get much, much bigger. We just don't know how yet but that is part of the anticipation the not knowing yes just the knowing that something good is coming that we're going to have this massive present that we're going to get to unwrap at some point even though we don't know what it is even though we don't know when we're going to be able to open it just knowing that it's there waiting for us sometime in 2021 is so incredibly exciting we cannot wait But what about you guys? What are you most excited for going into 2021? Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and let us know. Are you also excited for our top final two? If you are, hit me up. I would love to talk to you. (laughs) Are you excited to celebrate the history of all of these iconic game franchises here during their massive anniversary celebrations? Let us know. But speaking of celebrating history... Oh, uh, Seth, you actually had a really cool opportunity this week. Somewhat of an, uh, somewhat of a late Hanukkah present, essentially. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That, definitely, definitely a cool Hanukkah, late Hanukkah gift. Yeah, I got to speak with Kelsey Lewin, the uh, co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, uh, co-owner of Pink Gorilla Games in Seattle, and uh, yeah, it was an awesome chat. Um, it was actually, it was, it was really kind of informative she is so knowledgeable about video game history you know as you could probably imagine but even like when it comes to like nintendo history i consider myself to be somebody who is fairly well versed 
But uh, she learned me some stuff. Let me just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is actually going to be my first time even hearing this. So I'm excited to see what she has to say. How about we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right, dear listeners, our special guest this week is Kelsey Lewin. Kelsey is the co-owner of Pink Gorilla Games in Seattle, and she's also the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. I'm super excited to have her on the show this week. Kelsey, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's it's our pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I'm like, man, I've got to get Kelsey on the show. She's so knowledgeable about video game history and stuff. And that's something we're really passionate about. We talk about it a lot on the show. So, so it's an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. You know, it's it's actually kind of interesting because, like I said, you co-own Pink Gorilla Games in Seattle, which, if folks don't know, is a retro gaming store. Um, I think you have, what, two locations? Yeah, we have two locations. Yeah, it's it's one of, like, the mainstay stops that my wife and I, uh, my wife's family's in Seattle, and every time we visit, we pop in there. It's an awesome store. Oh, cool. I had no clue. Yeah, no, we, we make it a point. It's kind of a, a pilgrimage, I think, uh, <laughs> every time we go. <laughs> But the retro gaming thing is definitely a major part of your life, uh, video game history in general. I know you guys just started recently the VGHF podcast, the Video Game History Hour. We did, yeah. How's that been going? Like, how have each of those sort of facets, especially in 2020's craziness, how, how has that been for you guys? Well, you know, I think 2020 was the perfect time to launch a podcast, actually. <laughs> right, uh, right. There wasn't a whole lot else we could do, um, at least in terms of you know, the, the sort of normal day to day where we're uh, mm. I mean, last year in 2019, we were in Minneapolis for five weeks digitizing stuff at Game Informer. And, you know, so that, I mean, oh, there's wow. things that we're not really able to do with the no travel this year, um, you know, can't have volunteers in the library, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, the podcast has been going great. It's been a really good chance to highlight the other really good work being done in the field because there's so much good video game history work being done. Um, it's just not really centralized in any way. There's not, um, mm. you know, there's not like a, this is a bad example, but a TV channel or whatever that's highlighting video game history. So we wanted to try to bring some of all of that together, um, be it YouTube videos or articles or books even, and uh, get, you know, give people a chance to kind of rehash their research and, and show it off and hopefully drive some more eyeballs onto not just their research, but video game history in general. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that sort of seems like the the mission, right? I mean, I think that's what's kind of interesting about video games. They're unique in that it seems like anyway, unlike other art forms like film or, you know, book books or art or whatever, seems like video games aren't as well, I guess documented or preserved as other art forms and like you said there are some other folks who are doing good work but yeah kind of making a centralized hub for all of that stuff is definitely a uh, a worthy cause so we we definitely appreciate all the work you guys are doing over there yeah we get you know i mean film history was behind for a long time too i forget exactly what the statistic is but the uh, film foundation says something like 80 or 90 percent of golden age films are completely lost to time so i mean we're not the first industry to to mess up by not taking it seriously right away um and i'm sure we won't be the last but um you know we're trying to 
kind of stop the bleeding now and fix whatever we can and then make sure that it's if we don't do that in the future, <laughs> that we don't lose anything else in the future. Is there anything you would love to see the industry change or do to make further steps towards preserving games or like in other words make your job easier yeah well i mean the the big thing that all companies should be doing just for their own interests obviously is having their own internal archives um that doesn't really Mm. help people like us researchers and um, those who want to actually study it and take a crack at it but it at least keeps it from actually disappearing and you don't have situations where when a company wants to remaster a game or um, talk about their own history, they're like, oh yeah, um, those guys don't work here anymore. We don't have that anymore. That was thrown <laughs> right. away. So I mean, it, it at least prevents that, which is which is good. And you know, it's financially usually a good idea for those companies too, which spoiler alert, it's usually the best way to motivate people to do things is <laughs> by telling them that it's a good idea financially. Um, but uh, in terms of what would be most helpful to researchers, of course, is making you know making there a, a pathway for study for a lot of this stuff, and that's something we're we're especially working on with our video game source project. Um, are you familiar with what what we mean when we say source or source code? Oh no, please go ahead and explain. Yeah, so video game source is kind of all of the pieces that create sort of the DNA of a game. It's all of the the parts of the recipe, basically, and you put right. them all together. It's got the instructions for the recipe and, uh, you know, in what order to put them in. And then the end result is the final game. So a source repository will have everything from, you know, sometimes early art in it. It'll have, uh, you know, maybe commented out features, um, things that maybe were once thought to possibly be in the game or they were experimenting with it. I want to be clear. It's not always like we cut this part because we don't like it anymore. Sometimes right. it's we ran out of disk space or actually this wasn't good or we were just playing around here. Um, but all of that gives you a much more complete story of sort of the development of this game and maybe the thoughts that were in behind it, especially when you have um, the actual code, which will often have um, comments in it. You know, the programmers and the developers will actually comment oh, wow. things kind of in the margins there. Um, it's, you know, kind of kind of like when a director marks up a script or whatever in, in the movie. That's awesome. Industry. Yeah. Um, so that's not something that is really ever made studyable or public, even to... Uh, you know, there's not really a precedent for like, well, if you just go to a library, then you can study it. Um, right. If you just check a box that says you're a researcher, then you can study it. Um, video, the video game industry is understandably pretty tightly wrapped. They don't want to, uh, you know, there's a lot of trade secrecy concerns, uh, which is understandable. And so it's very rare to see a studio even 30 years after a game comes out um, want to kind of open the vault and show any of that stuff off. Um, So we're missing some pieces when we're doing research. Uh, A lot of the best research, of course, comes from like interviewing people and stuff, because you don't actually Mm. get that much from just playing a game. You know, you don't really get a whole lot of the the greater story behind it by just playing a game or looking at the box art Um, or even you know, you'll get a lot more if you're looking at things like magazine coverage or articles or, um, you know, more modern terms, people tweeting about it or uh, YouTube videos and stuff. But um, you at least start getting closer <laughs> that way. But the the full formula kind of includes all of the, um, 
you know, the press impressions, the actual marketing that they put out into the world, the actual press releases they sent to the press, you know, what did they want the press to say as opposed to what the press actually said? Right. Um, and then, of course, all of these components that go into the making of the game itself. So um, to circle all the way back to your actual question, <laughs> uh, one of the best things that companies could be doing if they don't feel like they're, uh, you know, their 30 year old game or whatever is at risk of being stolen and recreated or whatever at this point um, is letting people see some of that stuff, letting, letting historians take a crack at that. And, and again, that's something that our source initiative is really, we, we really want to make a nice uh, compromise between everyone in the, you know, both in the industry and outside the industry and make sure everyone's comfortable. And that's still something that is very early on has not been figured out yet, but we want there to be a way that companies can feel comfortable with that idea. And, um, of course, the end result that people get to study that stuff and write books and documentaries and and cool things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was thinking about this as you were talking. The the big Nintendo Giga Leak that happened this year, like, I think that just kind of speaks to kind of what you were talking about, right? Where all of a sudden we've got access to all these high definition art and assets, and the L is real thing happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it, it, at the very least, it speaks to the enthusiasm of people to uh, consume interesting video game history right i mean i'm you know i can't can't exactly go on the record and defend people for stealing things from nintendo but but <laughs> right, at the very least companies should be taking notice about how you know the intensity in which people are excited to see this stuff um and how enthusiastic they've been to discover it oh yeah so, so do you guys, speaking of that, have kind of like, a, I'm sure there's many answers to this question, but is there like a white whale that you guys would just lose your minds to get a hold of? <laughs> um, we all have different answers to this, although they're really all very similar. Um, my personal answer is a game concept. I say concept because I don't really think it was ever quite this far in development, but um called cabbage have you heard of cabbage i have not heard of cabbage no okay so cabbage was a nintendo project um somewhere in the nintendo 64 disc drive era mm. um and there were never any screenshots there were just like you know things said in interviews some little press snippets that sort of thing um cabbage sounded like it had a lot of concepts in it that would later go on to be used in things like Nintendogs and Animal Crossing. Okay. And uh, some of their really popular, uh, I guess, more casual games. Um, and I think a lot of the ideas that they had for those games kind of originated in this concept, in this cabbage concept. It was supposed to be kind of like a... Um, simulator pet raising communication community thing like you know they used all these buzzwords things but they're all the same buzzwords right. that they use with games like animal crossing and nintendogs and that sort of thing so um i would personally just love to see sort of the origins of these ideas and what they what they thought some of those ideas would look like all the way back then um versus kind of how they grew over time so that's my answer. Um, most people's answer, and this is a, it, I don't even think this is cliche. I think it's completely valid. Most people's answer is Mother 3 on the wow. Nintendo 64. Yep. Um, yep. And that's, I mean, 
that game was playable. So we're missing not just a, a concepty type thing like Cabbage. We're missing a whole playable game. I mean, it wasn't finished, but it was finished enough that they could, you know, demo it, that, that you could play through large chunks of it. So I think I think for a lot of people, that's the answer. And that's a it's a good answer still. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, so obviously we love Nintendo here. and We know you're also a big Nintendo fan yourself. Um, in terms of the things that you've kind of been able to discover, acquire, and document in your work, what is your favorite kind of piece of like Nintendo Obscura, like your favorite obscure Nintendo fact or piece that you've acquired in your work? Um, so I, just as, as a historian, my favorite things tend to be like the paperwork, which sounds weird, but okay. um, when you are covering something and you have access to like the, you know, the press releases or even the um, the sheets they gave out at Tokyo Game Show or at uh, Space World to kind of show what they were working on and at what stage of completion it was at and all of that. Um, those are the most interesting things to me. That being said, uh, back when I used to do YouTube videos, um, I did a video on the Super Nintendo Exertainment bike, which is a stationary bike that works with the Super Nintendo. Right. Um, when we were at Game Informer last year, and I, I spent so long on that video piecing together from, uh, from, I mean, a ton of different newspapers that like, you know, took one little snippet from the press release and talked about it. Um, it wasn't really covered so much in game magazines, obviously. It was covered in Nintendo Power, but that's about it. Um, but I was piecing together, I was basically trying to piece together the press release from tiny one sentence snippets from, Holy moly. you know. 40 different sources, right? And it took me, I, I don't even remember. I mean, just hours and hours of worth of work. I mean, well, I think that that whole video took me at least 80 hours. Oh um, my goodness. Well, when we were at Game Informer, I found the press kit for the Exertainment bike. So it was really cool to see that, you know, I it had taken me all that time to piece together all of the information on there. But I was like, oh my God, it's all here. Like, these are all, here's the piece I took from like, you know, this newspaper in Kentucky, here's the sentence I took from, you know, this coverage over here. And it was just all in this press release. So that was, uh, that was the most exciting thing and validating thing for me personally, because it ended up being that uh, I didn't miss anything. <laughs> I managed to piece together an entire, an entire wow. press release from all of that. But, you know, as nice as that was, um, I could have had that information in five minutes had <laughs> that press release existed somewhere right, right. so um could have but you wouldn't have the validation <laughs> <laughs> all your hard work was accurate and can now be cross-checked yeah it was i mean it was cool but it was also like man this is why we do what we do because the next person isn't going to have to spend you know 50 hours trying to piece this right. together they can just look at this that's awesome well what was sort of your your pathway to getting involved with the video game history foundation um, well, the, I mean, I've, I've always been interested in video game history a little bit, but I didn't really start taking it seriously until, um, gosh, six or seven years ago is probably about accurate. I'm, my time is weird right now. I don't know if that's, that's I'm, true. For 2020 you. has been 20 years long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Um, and when the video game history foundation launched in 2017, um, I was just really excited to see someone who sort of had the same sensibilities I did about 
video game history that that we needed to be looking at um, at things like press releases and that sort of thing. And, and that's how we get a more accurate picture of the entire story. Um, and so I was just, I was really excited about that. I reached out to uh, Frank Cifaldi, who's the founder, and just told him I was a recent uh, college grad. I uh, had a degree in communications and had done some PR work and that sort of thing. And so I was like, Hey, uh, I just want to help you out with your communications. Just, you know, here's my skill. Let me just do whatever I I can do for you because I really like this cause. Um, And he, you know, not not that he did anything wrong. In fact, I would probably react the same way. He was like, thanks, but I don't really know you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I just, yeah, I mean, I just kind of kept throwing money at it and showing up and and talking enough. and, And, you know, I, the phrasing I say is that I just kind of bothered him until he was like, okay, fine, you can do stuff. So, <laughs> um, but obviously it's, it's worked out great. We've been, um, I've been involved now for like three and a half years almost. So, uh, yeah, we've been, we've been doing good. Doing great work, doing the podcast and everything. How can folks listening kind of get more proactive and kind of helping you guys achieve your goal over there? Yeah, so I we're really bad right now about uh, volunteer labor that's not like in person. That's been, and of course, right now there's really no in person <laughs> volunteering. Right, of course, um, that's on my agenda for like January <laughs> is figure out more uh, ways for people to get involved online. Gotcha. Uh, we do have a little bit. I mean, obviously, the easy answer is, of course, just donate because uh, we can always use more money. We're not even paid right right now. Um, All the money goes to the mission and to uh, maintaining our archive and library, all of that stuff. So, um, but there's, there's a couple things we can do online right now. We are trying to get transcripts made for all of our podcasts so that they're a little bit more accessible. And so that if someone, you know, I mean, we had, we had like Sid Meier and, and that sort of thing on the show. So there's, there might be things within those interviews that a historian might want to use later. Um, so we have people helping us with transcription for that. And then, yeah, beyond that, I mean, just start joining video game history communities in general. If you start just getting a kind of a pulse on what's going on, uh, there's a lot of places where there's just little, we need help one off right now with this project. Um, a couple good places to start. There's a, a Discord called Gaming Alexandria. Um, the Video Game History Foundation obviously has their own Discord as well, although it is um, it's a tier for our Patreon, so it's a it's a donor backed Patreon. Got uh, it. Or Discord, excuse me. So uh, yeah, that's a. I wish I had a more clear answer for you, but um, obviously just being involved in the video game history world um, and in the preservation world, spreading the word asking around, um, donating. And then in January, hopefully I will have an actual volunteer portal for, for people. Some great initial <laughs> steps anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, the sort of shift to pink gorilla for a second, because being a co-owner of a video game retail store, I mean, that has had to have some major challenges for you in 2020. What, what has that been like? Yeah. I mean, so the good news is that people need video games when they're cooped up indoors. Um, so we, at least interest-wise, haven't been hit as hard as some other industries, which I am just overwhelmingly thankful for. Um, I owe a lot of it this year to uh, my husband, who has a a Twitch channel, a Twitch stream that he's 
you know, is fairly popular. And so right. when we were forced to shut down, um, we were selling a lot of stuff through that Twitch stream and then just kind of, you know, in, yeah, invoicing people and, and shipping them stuff, which isn't something we normally do a whole lot of. Um, it's difficult to sell online and also maintain a good inventory for your local customers. <laughs> right. uh, so we tried to mitigate it a little bit. Um, it's the reason we just we don't have our stock on a website or anything like that. Um, we offer some opportunities for buying online, but it's uh, it's mostly done in person. And that's just something we've learned over the years of doing this is that when you let people buy stuff online, they only buy the good stuff and then they leave all the <laughs> of course. They leave all the not so good stuff <laughs> in the in the store. So um yeah, I mean just selling online and then now that we're open again, it's been it's been fairly good. It, you know, it's been challenging to keep up with all of the the sort of 2020 things you need to do to keep your right. store running safe. Uh you know, like it's it's more expenses, right? Like we mm. have masks and hand sanitizer for people when they walk in and, and that sort of thing. But it's really, we've been pretty lucky. We've been able to continue operating. People are uh, still into buying video games in a pandemic because they're bored in their home. So it hasn't been nearly as bad for us as I think other industries have been. Well, that that's really good to hear. I mean, having those kind of spinning plates, right? Like you've got the retro game retail going on at pink gorilla you've got the video game history foundation you now have the brand new podcast video game history hour how do these spinning plates kind of differ from each other and how do they sometimes maybe intersect um there's there's certainly some intersection in that i mean i i get the chance to meet a lot of people through the retail job that i think kind of end up getting folded into mm. the greater video game history world and sometimes that just means you know collectors who are kind of getting into this and care about the the heritage and the the history and that sort of thing and then i can just kind of evangelize a little bit and be like <laughs> did you know i also have a nonprofit? um <laughs> but sometimes too it's you know actually meeting people like someone will come in with a bunch of games that all have uh, Microsoft employee stickers on it. And then I can ask, you know, like, oh, you know, did you work at Microsoft and are you getting rid of your stuff? And it not, this isn't something that happens every single day um, that someone's like, oh yeah, I have stuff. I can just donate to the Video Game History Foundation too. But yeah, every once in a while we end up, you know, I end up in more opportunities to sort of meet people who can, um, help out with the mission of the foundation as well as obviously just sell stuff to the store. Um, nice. Yeah. So those things intersect every once in a while. That's awesome. Well, Kelsey, I cannot let you go without talking for at least just a second about the wonder Swan, <laughs> uh, because you may honestly be the utmost authority on this little handheld out there on the internet. At least on the English speaking internet. I'm sure there's some Japanese people much smarter That's fair. than me because they probably grew up with it and I did not. <laughs> That's fair. Well, could you briefly tell the folks at home about the Wonder Swan and, and some of the best games to play on it if they seek it out? Sure, yeah. So I'm I'm a big fan of this weird little handheld. Um it was created <laughs> by uh Bandai and Koto Laboratories. Koto Laboratories is the company that Gunpei Koi of Game Boy and uh, Game & Watch fame right. spun off into when he left Nintendo. Um, he created this company called uh, 
Koto. And it's really, it's very entrenched in the sort of Yokoi-isms, um, the, <laughs> his philosophy of withered, uh, lateral thinking with withered technology, um, which is really, I mean, that's really what the, what the Game Boy is all about, right? You, it's coming out around the same time as the Lynx and the Game Gear with these big fancy color screens and everything. And he's like, well, we can make this one like a hundred bucks and we can put, you know, really nice games on it. And we can use kind of a a tried and true technology that doesn't die in one hour. And, (laughs) uh, and of course, obviously the Game Boy was a smashing success compared to those two. So um, Koto Laboratories was really entrenched in that. The Wonder Swan is kind of the, culmination of that concept. Um, and unfortunately, Okoye passed away before the Wonder Swan came out. So it's not, you know, it's it still very much has his scent on it, I guess, but right. it's not a 100% Yokoi designed system. Um, and it's a, a neat little handheld because the, the original one is black and white, just like the Game Boy. Um, but it's a lot more powerful graphically. So um, looks kind of more like Game Boy Advance level, but in black and white. Um, And some games can be played normally, just horizontally, and then other games can be played vertically, which is really cool. (laughs) You know, cool little thing. So it's a system that's pretty well suited for things like shoot-em-ups. When you have kind of a longer screen, you can use vertically. Yes. Um, And there are a couple really good shoot-em-ups on the system. But really, I mean, it's just a, a very odd system that's done a lot of interesting things there was a uh, a sonar a fishing sonar for the wonder swan um there was a kind of like a mobile uh internet service for the wonder swan it had one of the earliest kind of indie scenes because uh, <laughs> you could You're buy kidding. a yeah you could buy a wonder swan dev kit just you could just go buy one um and so people would just make their own Wonder Swan games. They even held a couple competitions for uh, creating Wonder Swan games, and the winners for the they did it for three years, and the winners of the first and second uh, Wonder Witch Grand Prix actually had their games published, like with retail box and everything. Wow! So <laughs> yeah, so really cool. Um, and my favorite, of course, is that there was also a. Uh, collaboration between the Wonder Swan um, and a healthcare company called Tanita, and they made a pregnancy tracker for the Wonder Swan. So it is a combination oh of a goodness. system and a scale and a program that helps you like track your pregnancy and give you tips. There's some little mini games on it. Um, that was my white whale for many, many years and finally That's found awesome. one. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I love the system. It's really, it's just kind of a, a quirky little system. And uh, I've been collecting for it for several years. I am now 26 games away from a full Wonder Swan set. So I'm really excited oh, about nice. that. Oh, nice. Um, I'm very stuck though. There's like, <laughs> it, it, this isn't like, you know, some of the other systems like NES or Super Nintendo that are pretty well-tread and... and mm might be very expensive but not all that hard to collect for because you can usually just go on ebay and be like okay well you know i guess i'll buy a little samson now (laughs) uh about 20 of these 25 or 26 games are just straight up there's none for sale right now anywhere on the entire internet so (laughs) wow just rarity then i guess yeah right and not all of these games are even like exciting i mean one of the ones that took me the longest 
to find is just like a casino-y card collection called Trump Collection 2. And like this game wasn't even on Wikipedia. Wow. (laughs) So, I mean, it's just, it didn't end up even being expensive because who cares? But it's it's just, you know, the system did okay. Um, They say it captured about 10 to 15% of the market share in Japan, which, you know, when you're up against the Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, that's really not too bad. Yeah. Um, But just, you know, with a little over 200 games, some of those were were bound to not be all that exciting and maybe not carried in major retailers. And so there's a few of these that are just kind of a pain in the butt. (laughs) Well, you talking about it online has kind of had me interested in, in starting to collect it. And it's it's got all these cute, quirky, like, color names. Oh, yeah. The color names are the best. Like, <laughs> like Soda Blue and Sherbert Melon. Yes. It's so good. <laughs> yes. It's my favorite thing. Uh, what What are some of the best games? Like, if you had to pinpoint a handful of games to seek out for new Wonderswan collectors. Yeah. Uh, my favorite game on the system is called Rhyme Rider Kararikon. Um, mm. It is made by the same guy who did Vibribbon. Oh, if you're familiar with that one on the Japanese PS1, I love Vibribbon. Yeah, so it's it's a very similar game. It's a a rhythm platformer type game, um, and it's super fun. And you kind of have to get it with its original box because the instructions are in the box, like <laughs> for which button to press when you encounter when you encounter. Oh certain- wow obstacles so i mean you can you can look it up online but um i always thought that was annoying i'm like wait so if i don't have the box i just don't know how to play that's yeah (laughs) guess i just don't know how to play Um, all right cool there's a lot of really good like ports on the system things like puyo puyo and puzzle bobble and klonoa and uh makamura ghosts and goblins um, there's a weird little game you probably haven't heard of called Ingacho, no. um, which also came out. It came out on the uh, Japanese PlayStation, but it's a okay. weird puzzle game that uh, there's got to be a name for this, but I always just have to end up describing it and everyone, everyone knows what I'm talking about, but I wish there was a quicker way to do it. But, you know, you're on a grid and you move your character and there's a kind of like a mirrored character that moves in a certain way with you so Mm. like if you move one step forward maybe they move one step to the left or whatever okay the object is that you have to get them both to the end of the stage right um there's got to be a name for that yeah there's no good like (laughs) shorthand yeah um i'm just trying to peek over at my collection real quick uh gunpei is kind of the the go-to puzzle game on the system it's been there have been versions of it on other things. It's on the DS and the PSP, but I really like the Wonderswan versions. Uh, there's actually three versions of them on the Wonderswan. Regular Gunpei, um, Tarno Panda Gunpei, which is panda-themed Yes, Gunpei. love that. <laughs> and uh, Gunpei EX, which is just like a improved, colorful version of it for the Wonderswan color. So, Gotcha. Um that's a, those are a couple things. I'm sure I can come up with more, but I can't really read the titles from where I'm sitting, so I'm not very <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very inspired right well, now. It's a good starting yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a couple couple Mega Man games on the system too. I think people like hearing about that. I actually haven't put too much time into them, but um, yeah, there's I think three Rockman Mega Man games on the system nice that's awesome i I really i need to look into it i've been really interested in it and i know some of our listeners are going to be interested here about it too but kelsey 
thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, in, in terms of social media, how can folks find you and Pink Gorilla and VGHF online? Yeah, um, I am usually a Twitter person, so you can find me at Kels Lewin, K-E-L-S-L-E-W-I-N. Um, you can follow the foundation at Game History Org, um, or just go to our website, GameHistory.org, um, and then Pink Gorilla is, uh, you know, you can go to pinkgorilla.com or um, pinkgorillagames.com, excuse me. Uh, we have merchandise and some other cool stuff on the website, but not games, unfortunately. Um, you can follow our Twitter at LLC. We post a lot of the really cool stuff that we get in day to day. So even just for window shopping, it's kind of cool to follow. Well, Kelsey, thanks so much again. It's been a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me. But yeah, that was my chat with Kelsey. And uh, again, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much again, Kelsey, for coming on the show. I had a blast talking to you and learned a lot. And um, yeah, it was just a, a super informative interview. She was a total pleasure to talk to. So yeah, I, I had a really good time. Nice. I will definitely have to check out gamehistory.org. Yes, yeah, she's, you know, you said this uh, before we played the interview, but uh I like to think of myself as being fairly knowledgeable on Nintendo history, but yeah, she's, she's something else, isn't she? She knows, she knows way more than you and I, that is for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully we'll get the chance to talk with her again sometime in the future. Well, everybody, I think that might do it for all in here in 2020. Yeah, that's actually weird to consider. It's last episode of 2020. We have looked inward We have looked forward, we have looked backward, and now it's kind of just time to say goodbye to 2020 and onward and upward to 2021. And this might be the end for our 2020. However, we are going to continue to come to you guys every Saturday right here on the All In Podcast. We are going to continue this journey, and we really hope that all of you will continue to come along with us. Please do reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. We are going to do everything in our power to make 2021 an even better year than this one was. And for many of us, that shouldn't be too hard. (laughs) However, like you were saying, Seth, onward and upward. I have been Turbo Man and his faithful pet sidekick, Eric. And I have been, you'll shoot your eye out, Seth. We hope you had a fantastic holiday. We will see you again in 2021. Ladies and gentlemen, Happy New Year. Happy New Year.